Hello, and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. For those of you who have been joining me the last few weeks, we appreciate you. And for those of you who are just joining, welcome. During these challenging times, we understand that our clients have a lot to be concerned about, and we are here to try to provide relevant information on how what's happening in the markets and the economy may impact you, your family, or your business in the coming months. I want to shift gears slightly today and talk about one of the biggest challenges investors face in making the right decisions in order to meet their long-term goals. Turns out, the biggest challenge is actually our human nature. The study of this is called behavioral finance, and it represents, in my view, the single biggest reason that investment management has evolved over the last several decades to include an expanded focus on a client's risk tolerance and long-term goals. So what is behavioral finance? Behavioral finance is the study of the influence of psychology on the behavior of investors or financial analysts. The essence of why it has garnered the attention it has over the last several years is that investors are not always rational, have limits to their self-control, and are influenced by their own biases. And yet much of the academic framework around investing was based on assumptions that the markets were in fact rational. And as you can imagine, the last few months have proven to be very challenging for investors. And as advisors, we are as susceptible to some of these behavioral biases as our clients. In addition to the review of fundamental and technical factors, our team is focused on determining how investor sentiment could impact longer-term outcomes. In addition, one of the benefits of relying on a team framework is that it tends to insulate decisions from these biases, as not all of us suffer from the same ones. I want to focus on three types of biases that are particularly relevant during this period. First, let's talk about loss aversion. Loss aversion describes investors' stronger desire to avoid losses than to obtain gains. An example of this, and one that we're certainly seeing in this environment, is an investor holding a losing position to get back to even in order to make them feel that their decision was not a poor one in the first place. This is pretty common uh, amongst both uh, clients and advisors. We don't want to necessarily admit defeat with a particular position. And the best way to mitigate this bias is to force ourselves to reassess the thesis of why we own something on an ongoing basis. And so one of the things that we look at when we're assessing whether it's a stock or an investment in an asset class or a bond is to look at it and say to ourselves, Would we buy this again today, knowing what we know now? And by keeping a disciplined approach to why you still own something outside of what the price was that you paid for it, you can determine if it's an investment that you want to necessarily hold going forward, or if there's another opportunity that is available in the market that makes more sense, regardless of what the price was that you paid for the security in the first place. Another important bias is anchoring bias. Anchoring bias is a cognitive and information processing bias where people use a default number and do not adjust adequately. This has been a particular issue for income yield over the course of the last several years. 
Unfortunately, against this low interest rate environment in which we have existed since 2009, it has been difficult for investors to replicate the income yield on their portfolio that was available prior to the financial crisis without taking on additional risk. And so by anchoring the expected portfolio yield to a specific number and not putting it in context of what else is available in the market, investors who've been targeting a specific yield have actually been taking on more risk than they probably know that they are taking on, and certainly more than they would have had to assume prior to the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And this is particularly relevant as we move through the course of the last several months, where we've obviously seen a sharp sell-off in risk, and in particular, pressure on higher-yielding fixed income based on a lack of liquidity in that market, particularly in the mid-March to early April timeframe. Another example of anchoring bias can be seen in valuation. So for instance, if you look at the price to earnings ratio from the, for the S&P 500, that tends to move over the course of time based on both the sentiment in the market as well as the denominator, which is the earnings power of the S&P 500. The challenge is, is that historical constructs often produce the tendency for anchoring. So from an attractiveness standpoint, over the course of the last couple of years, many people have pointed to the P-E ratio on the S&P 500 as being either fairly valued or overvalued based on that historical construct. And so looking at it in terms of today, you're still creating the perception in your mind that this is where stocks were trading at six months ago. And if we like stocks then, we certainly should like them now because the valuations are lower. And you're not taking into account the fact that you need to adjust those expectations based on the fact that that denominator or that earnings amount is likely to continue to deteriorate and decline over the course of the next couple of months, thereby creating a different outcome for that P-E ratio. And so that's why it's important whenever you're thinking about anchoring to a particular number or statistic to put that in context and provide color around that with other statistics that can help create a more robust story. It's why we never rely on any one piece of information when assessing a particular investment, because we understand that those statistics need to have context around them as it relates to the overall environment in order to make sense based on the relative attractiveness of that particular opportunity versus what else is in the marketplace. The final type of bias that I think is particularly important during this period, is what is called hindsight bias. Hindsight bias describes the belief perseverance bias, whereby people remember their own predictions of the future more accurately than they actually were. And so take into account something like the dot-com and housing bubbles. Many people, particularly professional investors, well, in hindsight, say that they could see that coming based on this particular economic variable or what was happening with this particular chart or, or piece of technical analysis. And what happens there is that you apply a level of confidence 
to your ability to predict the future based on the ex post analysis of how well you determined the outcome previously. And so for instance, if you go back into mid-March, when we had a significant spread widening in the high yield market, and then you saw the Fed step in in early April and provide necessary liquidity, you could go back and say, well, of course I knew given the the liquidity constraints and the dislocation that we were seeing in the credit market in mid-March, that of course the Fed would step in. And in hindsight, you know, you would have been certainly rewarded for taking on that additional risk. However, given the fact that the Fed had not previously put in programs that would have supported corporate bonds, uh, there was no reason for investors to necessarily bet or assume that the Fed would make that type of step, despite the fact that we were seeing such a sharp decline in liquidity in those markets. And so I think it's very challenging for investors to move past hindsight bias. I think that it creates a an element of second guessing that can really be applied to every decision that you make. And so therefore, it's probably the most detrimental bias to being able to continue to monitor investments, be able to evaluate investments in the context of new information, and be able to create an expectation for the future without necessarily having all that information at your disposal and knowing the end outcome. Of course, the study of behavioral finance goes much deeper than just these three types of bias. However, that is why the creation of a financial plan and the adherence to a long-term strategic approach to managing your wealth is so important as it provides the discipline necessary for both the advisor and the investor to avoid these pitfalls. While there is still a lot of uncertainty at play, I want to encourage all of our clients to reach out to your Boston private team with any questions or concerns you may have. Providing guidance and support as your trusted advisor is our mission. If you have any questions or thoughts on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives as this situation evolves by visiting bostonprivate.com. And if you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters. Be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and check back in for our podcast next week. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions, and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 
or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.